think it's a testament to to the horses themselves because when I kind of changed the way that I was doing things and basically stopped fighting and trying to resist him pushing through and just went at it a different way, all of that, I guess you could say kind of negative energy, like my frustration with those two horses and I'm sure their frustration back towards me, it just went away so quickly as we both put working on learning a new way together. Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere. I'm your host, Tracy Malone, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I was born in Wiradjuri country, and this land I live on now is Waka Waka and Turrbal country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and to pay my respects to their ancestors, past and present. I'd also like to extend that respect to each and every one of you listening. This week's show is brought to you by Equitana Australia. Equitana is happening from the 15th to the 18th of November this year in Melbourne. Equitana, in conjunction with the Independent Miniature Horse Registry and American Miniature Horse Association, are proud to host Mini Tana, the ultimate showcase of miniature horses. You can enjoy getting up close with these cuties and watching a number of halter confirmation classes, as well as classes such as jumping and trail. Don't miss out on the miniature high jump contest, which is always a popular spectacle at Equitana. The events will be officiated by renowned judge Wayne Hipsley from the USA. All classes will have full commentary on placings, so it will also be an education opportunity for all spectators and exhibitors. It will happen on Saturday from 1.30 to 3.30 in the Think Fencing Arena. You can see this event with your day pass. To get your tickets, go to equitana.com.au. I really hope to see you there. Make sure you come and say hi if you see me. In this episode, I speak with Callie King from CRK Training. Just like so many other trainers I've interviewed on this podcast, Callie wanted to find a better way to do things after the experience she had with a difficult horse. So today, I wanted to first of all pay tribute to those horses, the ones who are on the front line of absolutely stubbornly refusing to respond in any positive way to old training methods of domination and negative reinforcement. They are forcing us to make the changes we need within the horse industry to be kinder, more gentle, and truly connected to our horses. I'm sending a big thanks and lots of love to those stubborn and apparently unable to be trained horses, and also to the trainers like Callie who have listened to them and not given up. Callie has a wonderful story how she took the time to learn as much about behaviour as she could with all different species to find a better and kinder way to train horses. She found mentors along the way and as a young person is yet another leader for her generation of teaching humans how we can go deeper with our horses and have the kind of relationship that we have previously only dreamed of. Here is Callie. Callie, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me on, Tracy. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Can you first, Callie, tell me a little bit about what it is that you do? Sure. So I live in Pennsylvania. I'm a riding instructor and a trainer. And I started uh, creating videos a few years ago. So now I also publish online courses about training and riding and horse care. 
Great. And do you work with a specific discipline or do you work across all disciplines? I really work across all disciplines. My focus has been on understanding behavior and um, more recently really understanding the biomechanics, you know, how the horse moves and how the rider moves with them. So that really doesn't need to be discipline specific. Fantastic. And where did this all begin? Did you grow up with horses? You're only young now. You're less than 30. But did you grow up with horses when you were younger? I did. Um, I, I was lucky that I was a horse crazy little girl. And my parents supported it in getting me riding lessons. Um, so I think I started when I was uh, six with, you know, like a weekly lesson and kind of rode off and on with that for a few years. And then I was, um, I was given my first horse, I think a little bit to my parents' chagrin, um, when I was nine. Nice. And Who was that yeah, horse? His name was Scotch, and he was named after his, his previous owner's favorite drink. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of horse was he? He was a quarter horse, and he was 30 when he was given to me, and he lived to be um, 37. Beautiful. That yeah. would have been hard, though, as a teenager to lose your first horse. It was. It was really hard. But he was, he actually stayed very strong and healthy, like right up until the last probably two weeks before he passed. So, um, yeah, he was, he was a pleasure and he taught me a lot. Wow. What did he teach you? Really? I think he's the one that just instilled the love of riding. Um, I mean, I always enjoyed my lessons and enjoyed the horses there, but there were times that I honestly got bored in my riding lessons as a kid um, because they were just a little bit too rigid. You know, you go and you walk and you trot around the arena. And with Scotch, since he was my own horse and I could just kind of play on him, I would go out and just ride for hours bareback um, around my, my parents' um, ranch in Colorado and it just, you know, not having the structure of a lesson. I mean, thankfully, I had that, that I had enough skill that I could take him out and ride him. But we just spent so much time, just the two of us, that it, I think it really instilled that love of, of the horse mm. and of being with the horse riding. Yeah, that freedom. Yep. Yeah, beautiful. And did you continue on riding through your teenage years after Scotch passed? I did. Yep. I kept riding. Um, I had two other horses that were really kind of the turning point horses for me. So as Scotch started to get older, I wanted to do more showing. At that time, I started getting interested in jumping and trying to be competitive. Um, so I got a thoroughbred named Sydney. He was five years old at the time that I got him. Uh, and he was a challenge. Um, you know, of course, looking back, a lot of it was due to the the lack of training that I was giving him and some of the poor training that the instructor I was working with was kind of, you know, helping us both with that wasn't as helpful. But basically, he would stop at jumps. So we were trying to learn to jump and he would refuse a lot. And I ended up falling off so many times that it kind of sent me in two directions. One, it actually gave me a fear of riding as an early teenager and two, it kind of got me kind of more interested in the behavior of the horse. So I wanted to figure out, you know, why he was doing this. Um, so I kept, I kept going with Sydney. And 
did quite a bit of showing as a teenager, but then I had another incident with a horse where it was a, a stallion that I was handling and he ended up attacking me, which obviously is very rare for to happen with horses. Mm. But I had some injuries from that. And again, it kind of just sent me in the direction of being more interested in horse behavior and like, why do they do the things they do? How can we as people and riders communicate better with them? And it uh, just took me on a different path than pursuing the, the competitive world. Great. How did you get the first horse to jump? <laughs> it, this, is, this is why it was scary for both of us because we would, again, at that time, I mean, I was 12 when I got Sydney and um, knew very little beyond just riding scotch around. So I went to a trainer to help me, help me with him. And she would, she would set up a jump. I was to ride him to it. She would stand behind with a whip and basically chase us both <laughs> over the jump. <laughs> and then if we made it over that time, she would put the jump up and we would do it again. And that was kind of what the lessons consisted of. And sometimes I would stay on, sometimes I would fly off. So it, like I said, I mean, you know, you learn something. You from, do. Uh, every, every experience gives you something <laughs> for sure. And it's only if you don't learn the lesson that it keeps happening. And do you think in that moment that you both became more brave or you both became more afraid of jumping by that method? We both became more afraid of jumping for sure. Yeah, yeah. wow. In fact, I still have, I've worked it quite hard at it, but I still have some of the, um, I'll call them kind of, you know, bad or defensive moves when I jump. You know, for example, I really had to work hard at not um, throwing myself at the jump because, you know, riding a stopper, it was kind of that trying to push them off the ground and um, just those little habits that we can get so quickly as riders that yeah. takes a lot more time to kind of uh, repattern them. Mm, amazing. Amazing. And how did you look into the behavior of horses? Where did you find that kind of information? Well, it's kind of funny because it, it took me through a number of different directions. So I first started looking a lot at natural horsemanship and studying some different types of natural horsemanship. And that took me a lot further, but it's, you know, I still wasn't quite where I wanted to be as far as what I felt from my horses and in the work that I was doing with the training horses. And it was actually when I got my dog. So I have a little miniature dachshund. Her name is Frida. And I got her as a puppy, and when I got her, I started reading dog training books. And there was one book in particular, it's called Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. And it basically just is kind of a primer on basic learning theory for animals and people. Mm -hmm. And after reading that and working with my dog and seeing the eagerness that my dog would have for the training sessions that Frida would have, Whereas with my horses, I felt like I never got that same um, kind of eagerness or excitement in our interactions, that it really started getting me looking into more of the science of behavior, learning the, the psychology of learning, and how I could start applying more of that to my work with horses. Wonderful. And how did it go? Who did you start with? Which horse? Oh, good question. Who did I, you know, I think one that I started doing a lot with, um, two actually come to mind. So I had Promise. Um, she was a 
thoroughbred off the track that I was working with at the time. And um, she had a lot of physical issues that I was trying to kind of rehab her from and get her back into riding shape. But of course, with that, she had so many bad associations because of the, uh, the pain that she associated with riding. Mm. And then I had another one, um, Stewie. He was a big draft cross, and I was working with him for his owner. He was a horse that came to me for training. And he was another one that just, he wasn't a mean horse at all, but he was really big, and he had learned to be able to just push right through people anytime that he got frustrated or he didn't understand something. So, yeah, they were the two that I was working with probably the most at the time as I was kind of studying more of um, behavioral science and starting to apply those those principles to the work that I was doing. And how did you go and how did they go when you first started? How much time did it take for it to click for both of you? Yeah, well, I think it it clicked really well, actually, for for both. Like on my side, it just made so much sense. I think it's also helpful. I've always had kind of more of like the analytical type of mind. Um, so understanding like a more kind of science-based process was very natural for me. Um, but I've had a lot of refinement to do. So for example, with those two horses, especially with Stewie, one of the mistakes that I made was I was um, starting to use clicker training and use more positive reinforcement in, in terms of like giving food rewards. But I was so excited about what I was doing that I taught him to do a lot of kind of tricks and I taught him to do too many things without having what they call stimulus control, which is basically just being able to say, you know, you only do this when I ask for it. So he kind of, in the beginning, became like um, the dog that, like, you pull out the treat bag and they run through all of their different <laughs> behaviors. You know, like, I would, I would take him out to the arena and let him loose. And he would do a side pass, he would do a backup, then he would trot a nice little circle around me, then he would go for a jump, you know. <laughs> it's like, what do you want? What do you want? Where's my treat? <laughs> exactly. So I had to really, you know, the learning was there, but I had to back up and understand how to do it in a um, more practical way and even just more of a safe way for working with horses. Yeah, great. It's still wonderful that you went from having a horse that was um, so resistant to training to so excited about training in such a short period of time. It's a real testament to this positive reinforcement, isn't it? Yeah. And you know what? It's so, I think it's a testament to, to the horses themselves because like when I, when I kind of changed the way that I was doing things and basically stopped fighting and trying to like resist him pushing through and just went at it a different way. Um, all of that, you know, I guess you could say kind of negative energy, like our frustra my frustration with those two horses, and I'm sure their frustration back towards me, you know, it just went away so quickly as we both were kind of working on learning a new way together. Fantastic. And where did you study the behavioral um, work? I, I read a lot of books. Um, I've actually found that I because there's not a whole lot of like published information out there on um, using it for horses. So I read a lot of books on dog training, on different animal training. I also read a lot of psychology books for um, people. So people are very different, but you know, the, the lower brain systems are similar. 
So it was a lot of kind of what drives our behavior is actually very similar. So I, I studied that just through reading. And then I also met um, Angelo Teletine. So he is involved in the International Society of Equitation Science. He's a, a professor at a university that is um, just about an hour and a half from me, luckily. And he had done his PhD in equine behavior. So working with him, I've learned some of those refinement pieces. I learned how to start taking more of the behavioral science into my riding. So for example, training, you know, kind of full circle training jumpers, but now doing it in a way that was made sense with how learning happened and um, was much more stress-free and instilled confidence for the horse instead of like my first experience with Sydney. Fantastic. And can you give us an example now, if you had that same horse or if you have a horse now that presented in the same way as your first horse that wouldn't jump, what would you do differently? So instead of the trainer standing behind you and you holding on for dear life and using the whip, what would you use now? Just to give us a really clear indication in our minds, because it is a podcast, of what it is yeah. that you would do. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so to give even just a little bit more background on Sydney, and I'll use him as an example, because I would, I would love to be able to like, you know, go back in time and have him to work with again. He was, he was a thoroughbred off the track. He was a little bit of, he was hot. Um, he was very sensitive. And his not wanting to jump, for him, you know, there's a lot of reasons that horses can refuse. But for him, it was just that he was never really allowed the time to learn how to jump, to learn how to use his body over the, over the fences. So from the very beginning, he really had a lack of confidence and a lack of balance. And then as he was just pushed faster and faster, he could never develop that. And that's really why he started stopping. And then the problem always just got worse instead of getting better. Because as he stopped more, he learned how to, how to refuse more effectively, how to like to do it more quickly and get out of the way more quickly and out of the way of the trainer with the whip behind us um, instead of being more confident and going over the fence. So if I was to do it over, I would start with spending a lot more time with Sydney just going over ground rails, Cavaletti, and then really slowly building those Cavaletti into small grids and only progressing through the grids when he was able to go through the poles and those small grids um, really confidently. So for example, one exercise that I use a lot now is putting a line of poles down, like six poles about um, four to four and a half feet, depending on the horse's trot stride, going through the poles until they're really confident, and then rolling the last two poles together into a really small um, cross rail, and just slowly putting that up, and then adding a fence behind it, and waiting until, I was working with Sydney again, waiting until he had the feeling where when he came into the fence, he um, just had that extra little push going in. So when you're like riding a jumper and they have that confidence that they take you to the fence instead of you know with Sydney every single fence was five strides out he would start to be backing off and I would have to be using a lot of pressure to try to get him to the base. Mm, wow that's two completely different forms isn't it and and one of them the first one he was really set up to fail from the start wasn't he yeah and the other one you just lay foundation so it's not like you're using any kind of tricks there's no special magic there there's just a really solid understanding of this horse didn't have what it takes to get over those jumps 
He wasn't set up to win. He wasn't set up to succeed and he just didn't have it. And if you stripped it all back and gave him that confidence in the groundwork first, then he would have come through a different horse. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we forget that horses have to learn how to use their bodies to do something. You know, it's just like if we learn a new skill, like if someone was going to go out and start doing, um, you know, vaulting or trying the high jump, it would take a long time to learn how to just use your body in that way. And I think we can take it for granted, some of the things that we ask our horse to do, that they should be able to just do it. But it, it's the learning of what's actually expected from them, as well as the learning of they have to figure out how to balance themselves, how to adjust their balance, how to figure out where they are in, in um, space. And with the added challenge of our weight on their back and us kind of in that same learning process, so it's really those two things, you know, it's the physical, how do I do it for the horse, as well as understanding what we're actually asking them to do. Yeah, because we watch them in the paddock and we think, look, they're so graceful, they're so athletic, they can do everything, you know, they're amazing out there. But once we take them out of that environment, like when we're kids and we're playing, we can do amazing things as well. But then once we grow and we're actually learning to do something, we have to start again, we have to lay the solid foundations, we have to build strength in all those areas to do it. We wouldn't go out tomorrow and just do a 10K run if, if we'd never done a run before. We'd actually start by walking. We'd start by building strength in our legs, mm -hmm. getting kilometers into our legs. Then we'd start with a slow jog. You know, then we'd start with walking and then jogging. And, um, and we'd work up to it. So we really need to consider that every time we're teaching our horse something new, even if we don't know if they've done it before. It's a really important thing. And if we get resistance, it's, a, it's such a great thing to consider. Mm -hmm. wonderful so yes. where to from there what did how far did this behavioral work take you once you learned it well I would say for me just so much more ease in working through all of the different um, challenges that I encounter with horses so I mean with my own personal horses I've been able to Feel like I have a much better relationship with them that they actually look forward to our interaction um, and to training and riding and with the horses that come in for training you know all of the kind of typical problems you know loading in the trailer um, getting hosed off for the first time even standing still at the mounting block when you know when we understand behavioral principles and the different motivations be for behavior and how it's how it can be changed working through those problems becomes so much easier and I think it's also easier to have I guess kind of I'll say compassion for the horse because you can understand how things that we might say are bad habits how they're so easily difficult and how many horses do you have so I have two horses that I would say are like my personal horses. And then I have another um, six right now that are school horses at my farm. And then I usually have around two other horses that are in for training. And then we have boarders here at the farm too. So then those horses live here as well. And do your school horses, because I know that school horses are a certain type of horse. They're usually just beautiful natured they need to get different people on their back each day they are the absolute 
I can't even think of the word. They're the gems of the horse world. They really are very special. Are there ever any behavioural problems that you need to work through with school horses as well? And can you give me an example? Yes. So one of my um, goals for the school horses, and I'll admit that I don't always do this as regularly as I like, but I like to ride them all at least once a week myself. And if I could have... um, you know, even just more of a ratio of experienced riders to novice riders, because with with novice riders, inevitably, everyone's going to make mistakes, you know, when you're learning to ride, it's just part of the process. Yeah. But those mistakes can affect the horse in, um, in what they understand. So for example, let me think of a, of a good example with that. Um, well, even just as simple as at the mounting block. So when a horse comes up to the mounting block, in order to really be able to stand well, especially if the rider is still in that process where maybe they're kind of pulling themselves on or they're not real balanced as they mount, the horse needs to be pretty square so that they can keep their own balance as the person gets on. Um, a simple mistake that a novice rider can make is bringing the horse up, stopping them, and starting to get on when they have you know, maybe one front foot that's kind of back underneath of them. So as the person's getting on, the horse starts to walk off just because they had to walk off to catch their balance. And if the rider doesn't then settle themselves in the saddle, ask the horse to stop and maybe, you know, hop off and, and do it again, even something that simple within a few times, the horse can just develop the habit of as soon as the rider starts to mount, they're off and walking. That's really fascinating. And it's a, it's a wonderful example. So us as humans, do you know how much it takes for us to change a behavior? Because I, I think it's like, I know with mindset and things like that, it's like 21 days or something like that. But a horse can learn it as simple as three times and change a behavior. Is that right? Yes, it is. So it's kind of a hard thing to ever put a definite answer on because it really depends on the how long the behavior has existed. So kind of how strong that really that neural pathway is in the brain for that behavior. The longer they've been doing it, really the more kind of ingrained that pattern is, and it's probably going to take a little bit longer to break. Whether it's a physical movement pattern or whether it's an an actual behavior pattern. So like a physical movement might be a horse that has gone hollow for a long time, you know, with their back dropped and that real high-headed stance. Mm -hmm. Um, And a, a behavioral thing might be that horse that just learns to walk off from the mounting block. But either one, it kind of works the same way. The longer they've been doing it, the more ingrained the pattern will be. And the other thing that really affects how difficult it is to change a behavior is kind of how high the, the reinforcement is. So the reinforcement being kind of what encourages that behavior to continue. So um, I think of a good example to kind of explain that. If, if you have a horse that is difficult to catch, um, but he's out in a lush grassy field and if the, you know if he's learned that it's pretty easy to trot off and he gets to eat grass for another 20 minutes at the end of the pasture until maybe the person works their way down then the reinforcement is pretty high for putting off catching if riding or you know interacting with that person is not a great experience for the horse whereas if they are in a small dirt lot and there's not a lot of value for walking away, then that behavior is probably going to change pretty quickly. Yeah. 
What's the biggest problem you've had with a horse that's come into your care and what did you do to change it? Let's see. The horse that comes to mind was a, um, a filly named Zelly. So she was also a thoroughbred. And Zelly had a number of medical conditions when she was a, a foal, like within a few days of birth. Um, up until I think she was probably like a, a yearling. So essentially, most of her early handling had been treating medical conditions, um, receiving injections, then she had a leg wound, so treating that wound. So by necessity, a lot of her early interaction was restraint. And she, she learned a lot of escape behaviors. So, I mean, things like barging forward, leaping in the air, kicking, um, because her early handling was not very pleasant, even though it was out of necessity, it wasn't very pleasant. And she was, you know, she had to be restrained for some of the treatments. And, but she learned that by reacting quickly enough and big enough, she could break free of the restraints. And then that, those behaviors stuck with her, even when, you know, she was healthy and she wasn't getting any kind of um, treatment that was unpleasant. As soon as she would get in a situation where she did feel a little threatened or when she got frustrated, she would react in a really big way. And like when she was one of the only horses so far that she came in on the trailer, we actually, actually backed the trailer like up into the barn, um, got her in the stall. They had sedated her to bring her there. And then I kind of set up a little shoot system to get her from the stall out into the paddock and then started working with her just out in the paddock. And with her, I started off doing almost entirely positive reinforcement just so that I could start to teach her things without triggering that big behavior because I knew that, you know, for one, it was dangerous. It was taking more of a chance of getting hurt. And two, there was no way she had learned to do things. There was no way I was going to be able to, you know, hold on to her or prevent her getting essentially reinforced by getting loose when she would do those things. So we just started in a completely different way so that those patterns weren't even, um, weren't even triggered doing simple things like walk forward and back up, learning some different. Was that at Liberty? Yes. Yeah. So she didn't have that feeling yeah. of restraint in any way, shape or form. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we put the halter on, I had to get really good at just moving with her so that even if the feeling of the halter would trigger that, that restraint response, um, I never, she wouldn't need a hard stop. Like I wouldn't pull back against her. And then she started to overcome that, that halter being a trigger. And how is she now? She's doing great. So I got her up to the point where she was a, um, a late two-year-old when I was working with her. So I got her up to the point that she was walk trot under saddle and then she went back to her owner to have another year or two to just, you know, grow up and then she'll probably come back for more training. Fantastic. You also do a lot about rider biomechanics and um, horse biomechanics as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why you learnt it, how you learnt it and what that brings? Sure. So as I got more into behavior and understanding behavior, I realized that it's more than just, um, you know, say reinforcement and punishment, which if anyone's not familiar with those are just the technical terms for kind of the, the influences for what increases or decreases behavior. But 
behavior has so much to do with how the horse feels and how they move and how they carry themselves are a big influence in how they feel. So even just aside from the fact of riding becomes easier when the horse and the rider are kind of in good form, when the horse is moving in a way where they feel better, so for example, when their neck is dropped um, and they're, you know, they're from their neck dropping, the back has a little bit more lift and they're moving freely, they're generally going to be in a different emotional state than if the head is up, the back muscles are tense, the neck muscles are tense. Just the way that the body is carried can change the emotional state of the horse, I mean, just like it can for people. Wonderful. So if we're walking and we're all stooped over because we've been on the computer all day and we're walking along, it can feel like you've got a cloud over your head and just adjusting yourself to stand up taller and look up straight can actually change the way you feel. So I can see how that absolutely makes a difference. How much impact did yes. you find that we as riders have on the horse and how they move? Oh, we have a huge impact. In fact, it still um, never ceases to amaze me. So my, my teacher for a lot of the biomechanics stuff has been Wendy Murdoch. And Wendy's, Wendy's training is um, quite diverse, but she took four years of Feldenkrais training, which is a form of body work. And I'm always amazed when I get a lesson from Wendy or when I use some of the techniques that I've learned from her on my own students, it'll just be the smallest, smallest little shift. Like for example, one of the lessons that I had with her, she was working with me on having me um, get a little bit wider in my rib cage and using the idea of thinking about kind of pulling my sternum slightly forward in order to find that. And just that little tiny movement, I mean, it was probably an eighth of an inch actual movement in my rib cage. My horse's canner was um, very noticeably lighter and different than, you know, five minutes before when we were going around. So it's just those little tiny, even the tiniest things can have a huge change. That is huge. That's really huge. Yeah. Wow. And is that an easy thing to teach people, biomechanics? It, it is when you do it a lot through um, kinesthetics, so like feeling. Um, and whether it's an exercise that you can tell somebody to do, like for example, in the courses, we have to work a lot that way, you know, where it's give someone an exercise and they can go out and feel it for themselves. Or when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with people and I will do a lot like actually um, touching them. So like I'll, you know, put my hand on their back and help them adjust their back position or you know, I'll touch their leg and I'll help them find a different way of using their leg. Because when we can feel something, when we're, especially when we're trying to learn a movement pattern, when we can feel it, it's going to stick so much better than just trying to intellectualize it. Mm. Can you teach a rider feel of the horse when they're riding? Is that something you can teach or is that something that you have or don't have? I think it can absolutely be taught. My, my opinion is the first part of feel is really just having an awareness and being more kind of present and just more aware of our senses. So I think that anyone can have feel and they can actually have feel pretty quickly, but it's really that the challenging piece is being really present and really noticing what is the horse doing, what is the sensation of the rain in my hand? 
um, you know, what part of the horse did I feel against my leg? And it comes in stages. So initially, you know, we might have to kind of think through those things. And then as certain skills become more and more automatic, we'll be able to have that sense of feel at higher levels because then our, you know, our, our um, subconscious can kind of take care of those automatic patterns and we can be focusing on different things. But I feel it actually, it absolutely can be taught. I usually start with if someone's in a lesson and they say that they just can't feel something, I'll have them stop and just breathe for two minutes and then we'll go off and try it again. And a little side question here. Have you ever found, if you've trained, taught somebody over a long period of time in riding, that when they, when you teach them feel of the horse, their life outside of horses changes a bit because you're teaching them how to feel. You're teaching them how to come into their body. So that would have to have, in my opinion, as an ex-counsellor, some kind of effect on their actual day-to-day -day life. Have you found that? Yes, I have. Um, one of the, the biggest things that people have actually told me is they, and this is kind of in addition to what you pointed out, which just is more of that, you know, feeling of, of the body and kind of mindfulness, I guess. But because so much of working with horses when we're doing it in a reinforcement based way is we're looking for what's right. So whether we're going to actually give the horse a reward, like give him a piece of food, or we're just going to release pressure, we're focused on looking for even the little things that the horse is doing that's right. And I've had several people that, that told me that taking that kind of principle to other areas of life, like working um, you know, with coworkers or with their children, that idea of looking for what in the situation is is good or what's positive really has a big impact on other parts of their lives. Mm, fantastic. And uh, why do you think horses are here? You've spent a lot of time with them. You've spent a lot of time training people. Do you think our awareness of horses is changing? Do you think they come? They, do you think they may very well be here to teach us something? What What do you What do you see as the role of horses in our world? Yeah, that is a really interesting question um, because I like thinking, thinking even further back, I find it fascinating to wonder about species that are domesticated. You know, were they domesticated because they were kind of at the right place at the right time um, when the interaction with people began to happen? Or was it that as the species, like as equids, were they somehow um easier or more adaptable to domestication you know than say a zebra or you know some of the other species that that we've in recent years have maybe tried to domesticate and haven't had success with so i do think that horses are here to teach us and i think it's really interesting how more recently horses are moving into kind of an accepted role as healers you know they're used so much now in different forms of therapy and um, even just personal growth programs that I think that horses do have a, a special connection with people in that way. Beautiful. I've always believed they've just been a bit of a sleeping giant for quite a while waiting for us to wake up and it seems we're finally waking up mm. and that's wonderful. And that's an interesting perspective. 
Yeah, yeah. And you also um, have a course uh, for the calm and confident rider. So you're able to take somebody who's really scared like you were and had some real issues and, and real patterns in their life and you're actually able to turn them around to confident riders? That's it. That is the goal. And we've had a lot of riders that have gone through that program that kind of said the same thing that we were talking about earlier with finding the effects of what they learned there going to other areas in life. And I, I started that because I had obviously experience with um, being afraid of riding myself. So I, I understood it. And I noticed that there were a lot of riders that felt that way. I think everyone experiences it at some level because it is a, you know, a dangerous sport and the horse is a big animal. Mm. Um, but there's kind of such a uh, culture, I guess, in the horse world of, you know, you just get back on and just ride through it and, you know, often kind of this like show the horse who's boss. Yes. That I, yes. Think, it's, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people feel kind of ashamed to say that, you know, they're getting nervous or they're feeling some fear. So I, I put that program together um, with the help of a counselor and um, a sports psychologist and also interviewing several riders that had kind of gone through this process of being being fearful and working through that. And just to give people strategies for, for starting that process. You know, it's not something that's going to happen in a week because it's a process of um, learning some mindset skills as well as just that always progression of building physical skills. And sometimes people also have to take into account with fear that fear can be your own body telling you that something is unsafe. You know, I've had some riders that go through there and they end up going to maybe a different, a different barn to ride at because they start to realize that the problem is not that they're fearful unjustified, but that there's actually, you know, they're being asked to ride above their skill level or in a situation that was unsafe, like with, you know, with my first trainer and with Sydney. Mm. And have you been able to take somebody through to being a confident rider all the way through? Yeah. 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 Yep. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, let me think of, um, well, I'll share Jen's story a little bit because she's a friend, so I know she won't mind, but she had, um, she started, she was someone that we met in person too. So she started riding and her, her lesson started out pretty good. Um, so she started as I would say a confident rider, but then as what happens to many of us, she had a few falls that really started to shake her confidence. And she also got a horse that was a kind of that borderline of she was a good fit, but she was also sometimes right at the edge of Jen's skill level as far as, you know, her challenge, because the mare could be a little bit um, sensitive and a little bit reactive to things. So she really had to work with that on, again, it was just that process of, working at the right edge of her comfort zone. So sometimes taking the horse out and taking CC out and realizing that, you know, today's just not a good day to ride. So I'm not going to force myself to 
push through this, I have to recognize that this isn't a safe thing to do for me right now. So we just work on groundwork today. That's great. And then adjust. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yes. You know, and other days that she would ride and, you know, the, the situation was safe, but, but she would use some of the strategies, you know, just even focusing on breathing is the most simplest one to be able to get into a better state and, um, and was really hungry to build her skills too. So as she got more skilled, more stable, stronger as a rider, then, you know, with kind of following all of those tracks, her confidence just, you know, continues to increase because she's still working on all of those. And so isn't it interesting that the horse and the human have a similar track? So um, once yeah. her balance and once her strength and once her skill built, her confidence built as well. Same as the horse mm -hmm. going over the jumps. Yep. And I think it's important too for people to, to think about, you know, we use like become a confident rider. I mean, I use that, for example, with the program because it's, it's what we think about what we want. But in reality, it's not like there's a destination that, okay, now I'm a confident rider. It's, it's just a process of being comfortable in um, where you're at in your skill set and what you're doing, and I think just enjoying your time there. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, for example, if I was to go out and jump a, um, a four-foot course, I would not be confident in doing that. You know, I don't have any horses that I'm jumping around that level for a number of years, so that would be, that would be out of my comfort zone. And so everyone has that, that ledge of where they're going to be confident and where they're not, and it's just kind of being okay with where you're at in the process to go higher. Yeah, and taking your time to go higher and putting the right things in place to go to the next level. So if your horse can't mm -hmm. take you there and you're trying to push it, then that's probably going to cause problems. So just doing it in a really smart, grounded and balanced way. I love it. Yeah. And you run online courses. Can you tell us a bit more about the courses that you actually run online? Sure. So I've got a number, I should say, we have a number of courses now. There are um, three of the online courses that I instruct, and then I also partner with um, other people to create the courses. So I mentioned you know, two of them in our conversation. I do a course with Wendy Murdoch, and I do a course with Angelo Teletine, and, um, and actually several others now. But the... The beauty of the online course is it's really fun to connect people that maybe live in an area of the world where they wouldn't have access to um, you know, these different ways of thinking about horses or even just to higher level or higher quality instruction. So being able to connect people in that situation with really um, you know, higher quality and higher level teaching is, uh, I think it's really exciting. Great. And so I can see a balanced riding course. Yes, that's one of the ones that I instruct. That's the one that actually kind of started everything. So about six years ago, I started making videos. Initially, they were for uh, the riders that I was working with one-on-one, -on -one, you know, in person, because I wanted them to kind of have something that they could look at when they weren't here for their lesson. And that was the balanced riding course, and it's had many iterations and grown a lot. Since then. Wonderful. And that's an eight week course. And then you've got your calm and confident rider course and mm -hmm. a 28 day program. Tell me a bit about the training journals. 
So training journals is where I film the horses that come in here for training. So for example, Zelly that I mentioned is in there. Um, some of Stewie and Promises later videos are in there. And basically, my goal for training journals was to try to show more of the whole process of training. Um, a lot of times when we're doing just an instructional video or more of a demo video, what happens is kind of the, it looks too easy. You know, it looks too easy that the horse just does it. And I wanted to show more of the process that, you know, for example, one of the horses that I had, had in to work on trailer loading, it took, you know, 30 minutes the first day just to get him to put a foot on the trailer. And we actually show that whole process so that it doesn't look just as simple as sometimes quick tutorials can make it seem. Fantastic. So that's the whole journey. That's great. And you've got paid courses, but you've also got some free courses that people can get a look at as well. Tell me a bit about those. Yeah, so we have three of them right now. There's um, Seven Days to Better Riding, Seven Days to Understanding Your Horse, and then also a um, free training session from the Calm and Confident Rider. So they're just basically, each of them is, um, the two seven-day courses are short videos that you watch each day. Obviously the riding one is based on rider skills. Understanding your horse is just some of the basic principles of horse behavior and how to communicate your horse better, understanding those principles. And uh, the confidence one is uh, kind of what we've been discussing, just some of those basic strategies for starting to build your confidence. Wonderful. And you've also got courses on there with Wendy Murdoch and with Angelo Teleton and Patrick King. Yes. Who's Patrick King? Yes. So Patrick King, um, he also has a very varied background. I, I really enjoy working with people that have done like a lot of different disciplines and studied many different, um, you know, kind of facets of training or of riding. So the course that we did with Patrick is focused on in-hand work. So really kind of that um, like classical dressage approach to in-hand work that's applicable to any discipline. Fantastic. Did I also see that every now and then you run a few courses, uh, you have people come in to do therapy work at your barn as well? What different things do you do there that aren't actually online courses? Yeah, so here at the barn, we, um, we do do events and at least once a year, we have a group called Natural Lifemanship, which is equine assisted psychotherapy. And they come out and do a training here. And some of the people are professionals, you know, counselors or psychologists that want to add in an equine component to their work. And other people are um, lay people or trainers like myself because um, what Natural Lifemanship focuses on in their therapy setting is really creating the relationship and understanding relationship skills with the horse to assist with that. But what they teach, the principles are you know, really exactly the same if you're wanting to just work with the horse in more of kind of a traditional training relationship too. Wonderful. So it just deepens that connection in some way. Yes. Yeah. So that's what we do with the, with the therapy work. And um, one of the things that we just started doing this year that I'm really excited about 
is uh, I also now do writing retreats in Costa Rica. I partner with Wendy to do those. Wonderful. So tell me a bit more about that. We take a group down. Um, usually it's like 10 to 12 people. And we, uh, we go down to Equisol, which is uh, Heidi and Carrie own Equisol. They live in Costa Rica. They both moved down there about 12 years ago. Uh, Heidi is a yoga instructor. And they have a barn down there, so we partner with them to do the retreat. We stay at a, a beautiful facility and usually take, you know, do like a riding lesson for everyone in the morning and then go out. We ride through the jungle. We ride on the beaches. It's, uh, it's always a really good time. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Is there anything, Callie, that you'd like to leave us with today? What is it? Is there anything we've missed, anything that you really think the listeners need to know? I think it's just that I'm always amazed how um, kind and forgiving horses are and actually how quickly they can kind of move to a different emotional state. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, I mean, for myself, I try to learn from them because they can be spooking at something and really tense. And then the next moment they're just calm and you know, fine with the world and sometimes vice versa. But I think it's just that they're so um, kind of transparent and, uh, and fluid in their, in their emotions. Yeah. And also responsive to the way it is that we are with them. Yes. You know, you're able to get such a different horse just by changing your training methods. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. How can people find you, Kelly? Tell us about your how we can reach you online. Sure. The easiest way is to just go to my website. It's crktrainingblog.com. And there's now there's actually hundreds of hours of free videos there. There's a little search feature. Um, we've, I've covered a lot of topics in the last few years, both you know, either myself sharing on things or interviewing other experts. So I think it's it's really a good resource for folks to um, just get. Yeah, and you do a blog as well, is that right? I do, yep. Every Friday we put out a new video or a new article that I write, and that, those are all posted on the website. Great, and the website is the main hub of all the information. Can we also follow you on social media? Yep, absolutely. I'm active on um, Facebook on Instagram and uh, on YouTube. I have a lot of videos there too. Thank you so much for your time today, Callie. I was uh, in, in asking you to be a guest on the show. What I really loved is that you have the positive reinforcement. Um, you're so much like all of the trainers and the values that I have um, that I look for in trainers when I ask them to come on the show, but you've been able to put such an extraordinary foundation underneath you with, I see you everywhere, everywhere I go. So you've got this amazing digital footprint. You're a real entrepreneur in the horse world as well. So I'd be amazed if somebody uh, listening to you today hasn't even just seen a little bit of a CRK training around. So you've got such a great foundation under you. You've got great science to, to back up everything that it is that you're saying. And I'm really glad you're in the horse world doing this and that you've got such a huge reach because you can get to every single corner of the globe. So thank you so much for joining me today. But really, thank you so much for everything that you do 
um, for horses and for us humans. And I hope we all catch up soon. Yes. Well, thank you. And I, I like to kind of sum up my passion as um, connecting people and information. And I know you're doing the same thing with this podcast. Yeah, that's exactly what it's all about. We're, we're all heading in the same direction and all absolutely have the same intention and hope for the world with horses. So thanks again, Callie. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Yes, thank you, Tracy. If you'd like to get in touch with Callie, then you can either follow the links in the show notes or you can go to the blog on my website where you can also see photos of Callie and her horses and her little dog. Go to the website, comealongfortheride.com. I'm on a mission to create a community of gentle and ethical horse people. I aim to inspire horse people to be kinder and more gentle, to give the horses of the world a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me as we together grow this incredible community, please engage with me somehow. You can leave a review on iTunes or Facebook. You can also subscribe to the podcast so the next episode will be there waiting for you each week. This can be done in all podcast apps. You can share or comment on social media posts or tell your friends about the podcast. You'll find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. You can look us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you'll also find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, just send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone you know who would love to listen but isn't quite sure how. I would love it if you would get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you would like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some wonderful people lined up to speak to, but this is your show as much as mine. So please... If there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch via the website or social media. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.